in the summer of 1982, it's like 41 years ago, I was a 15-year-old high school sophomore showing up for two-a-day practices with the varsity football team. I hear some of you laughing out there. I know, I know. I used to be really good. At one time, I had a beautiful body. Nearly 41 years ago. But we were sophomores, and they wanted the sophomores to actually show up the week before two a day started because we're not freshmen anymore. We've got to be uh, indoctrinated. We've got to be acclimated to our new surroundings. We've got a new field house and a new locker room, and we've got a weight room, and we've got, you know, group meetings and film sessions. We've got all this to get used to before the juniors and seniors show up. And so as sophomores, we show up for five days of kind of an orientation to what it means to practice and play with the varsity. Now, keep in mind, honestly, most of us were going to wind up on the JV team. We were, most of us, going to be playing on Thursday nights in front of, like, just our parents and the pep squad. You know, that was it. But on Fridays, all of us were going to suit up with and be on the sidelines in uniform with the varsity, like on Friday nights. Like real lights and real cheerleaders and a real band and a real PA and real referees, you know. The, the coach still stirred the Gatorade with a broom handle, but still, this was the big time. This was legit. We're not freshmen anymore. And so we show up for this Monday morning, kind of an orientation. And I got to tell you, this summer, August 1982, this summer was the first time in my football career I was not embarrassed to go into the weight room. I had grown three inches over that previous summer. More importantly, I had put on some significant muscle. Now, this is all relative. I weighed like 133 pounds, okay? <laughs> but I'd been roofing houses that summer, and I was a lot bigger and a lot stronger than I was the last time anybody at school had seen me. And so we had these universal weight systems. You remember these, these old universal systems? Like you've got the pin and you pull the pin out and you put it in a different slot for the, for the different weights. And so the first day, I walked up to the bench press area with all the other sophomore wide receivers and defensive backs, and that pin was at 140. And I was like, well, I think I can do that. And I slid in there, and I did three sets of 10 at 140. My max the year before was like 130. And so I'm repping 140 and feeling pretty good about that. Not because it made me stronger than everybody else, but because it kind of put me where everybody else was. Like all the sophomore wide receivers and DBs, we were all right there benching about 140. Feeling okay about that, you know. And this went on for five days. I'd walk up and I'd see the pin at 140. I'm not having to put it down. You know, I can keep it right there. That looks about right, you know, and I'm, I'm doing it, man. A couple of times I walked up, and it was like at 120, and I played that really cool, you know. 120, <laughs> you see this? Hey, Larry, get a look at this. Somebody put it at 120. What, are we letting third graders in here now, you know? Like I can take that up a couple of notches if that's okay with everybody, you know, 140. And I'm, I'm doing it, man. This went on for five days. I'm feeling pretty good about where I am with this team. The next Monday, all the juniors and seniors showed up. 
And the first time all of us, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, wide receivers and DBs walked up to the bench press, the pin was at 2.30. And Darby Doan slid in there and didn't move the pin at all and did three sets of ten. And I had a whole new understanding of what it meant as a wide receiver to lift weights. Darby raised the bar, literally. Those juniors and seniors set new expectations. Those juniors and seniors, my maximum was their minimum. Where I had finished, they were just getting started. They raised the bar. They set brand new expectations by their examples. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Titus chapter 1. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe, not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Blameless, above reproach. John Maxwell wrote a book a long time ago called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. The first law is the law of the lid. This law is that no organization will ever rise above the level of its leadership. Like the leadership acts as a lid. Like if on a scale of 1 to 100, if the leadership is at a 60, the organization will never ever even have a chance to get to 61. I'm not going to argue about that. It's irrefutable, okay? The law of the lid. If the mission of the church is to embody or carry out the life of the triune God. If the body of Christ is called to reflect the nature and the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in this world, then the church leaders have to live it. Their lives have to set the standard. The church will never, ever live up to its lofty calling without godly shepherds who live every single day the attitudes and the attributes that are consistent with a life in the Lord. If they're not, the church isn't going anywhere. 
If we are being changed by God to love like Jesus, those who lead us must show us by their lives. And we believe that's what these lists in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are all about. These lists are about Christian character. These two lists give us broad, general, all-encompassing sketches of what a follower of Jesus looks like. And this is the kind of person we all want to be. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, this is, this is what all of us are called by God to become. And so it makes sense to the Apostle Paul, and it makes sense to us, that these are the kinds of people who ought to be our leaders. We respond to our shepherds because of their great Christian character, not because their names are on the church website or because they're the ones who approve the church budget. For a church elder, who he is is a lot more important than what he is. The Bible never instructs God's people to follow a leader because he has an office or because he has a title. It has everything to do with his character and his life. It reminds me of the guy who pulled up to the corner and he rolled his uh, window down and asked a pedestrian, hey, did you see a bunch of motorcycles go by? And the guy said, yeah, about 20 minutes ago. And the first guy said, well, where'd they go? And the second guy said, well, they went up to that light, then they turned left. Why? He said, because I'm their leader. <laughs> Our shepherds only have authority in the church to the extent that the church submits to them. And the church is only going to submit to leaders. We're only going to follow when we see in them the character of Christ. And that's what we have in these lists. These are the markers of Christian maturity. These are the distinguishing traits of a person who's grown in Christ and experienced the life-changing power of His Spirit. Their character, their consistency is above reproach. They are blameless. They're not perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? If elders had to be perfect, we wouldn't have any elders. What this means is their character, their consistency is above reproach. Nobody can legitimately accuse them or criticize them of not doing everything they can to follow our Lord Jesus. It means these qualities exist in a man's life to such a degree that it's obvious to everybody who knows him, yes, this is really who this guy is. He really is like this. He's a model of discipleship to Jesus. He's the one raising the bar. He's the one setting the standard. When everybody else is doing 140, he's pumping 220, looking for 300, right? That's the elder. And we are selecting additional shepherds here to help us lead this church at Golf Course Road. And you've got the selection forms. If you still need one or, or you lost yours, uh, we've got a ton of them out here at the Welcome Center. You can pick them up in the church offices any day this week. And then next Sunday is the deadline. We need all those elder recommendations turned into us by this time next Sunday. And part of the process that we're going through as a church is looking at these lists. We have a tendency, I think, to not look at these lists in the right way. I think our default is to view these lists as narrow and legalistic qualifications. And then we make it even worse when we zero in on the things in this list that we can actually quantify and count, you know, the, the things we can actually measure. 
We don't know how to argue about whether a guy is holy or blameless or overbearing or disciplined. And so it's, it's hard for us to talk about those words in the list. You know, is that guy disciplined? Well, I think he's disciplined. Is he disciplined enough? Well, I don't know if he's disciplined enough. Get off my back, you know, I don't know. And so we just, we focus on the things we can count, like, like marriages and, and numbers of kids. And we put all of our energy and we put all of our attention into just those two qualities and we ignore the weightier markers that describe a man's character and his heart. You know, a guy can look like Christ, he can think like Christ, he can live like Christ, he, he can be exactly like Christ, but we get hung up on the fact that he doesn't have any kids, which is like Christ, by the way. Okay, we've, we've talked about this children thing. We, we, we've done this, right? We, we understand that this phrase, believing children or obedient children, Paul's not talking about fertility here, okay? He's talking about spirituality. This has nothing to do with the number of kids a man has, you know? If I were to say right now, okay, everybody who has children, stand up. Even if you had only one kid, you would stand up right? I mean, we know how this works. Corey, a few minutes ago, he said, it's time to dismiss your children to kids' worship. What that means is, if you have children, you need to dismiss them to worship. If you do not have children, then this instruction does not apply to you. That's what that means. And we know that's what it means. And I think that we've, we've understood that not having children does not disqualify a man from being ordained as a shepherd. And I think it's good that that's kind of where we are as a church now. What about husband of one wife? Let's talk about that for a minute. In the original Greek text, in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, it's the same three words in the exact same order. Meus gunaikos aner, okay? Of one, that's meus, and then gunaikos means woman, and aner means man or husband. That's, that's it. And so literally, this means man of one woman or man with one woman or one woman man. That, that's what those words mean literally. Now, most Bible translators and Bible scholars will tell you the most accurate way to understand and render these words is faithful to his wife. This is a present tense phrase. This matches all the present tense verbs in both of these lists. Everything in here is present tense. The word blameless, think about it. That's not talking about the guy's past, obviously. When you say above reproach, we're not talking about his history. We're talking about who he is right now. Same thing with faithful to his wife. This is about a man's character, not his marital history. Maybe he's had a previous divorce. Maybe he's got other sins in his marital past. That's not the concern. The concern here is what's going on with him right now. Is he sexually pure right now? Is he loyal to his wife right now? If he's married, is he faithful to her in all things? For the Golf Course Road Church, this is our understanding, and this is the way we apply this. We believe this fits with the Scriptures, and this fits with the function of an elder much better and more faithfully to the grace and forgiveness of our Lord than saying that 
Any divorce, no matter when it happened, no matter what the reasons, disqualifies the guy automatically from being ordained as a shepherd. Listen, church, divorce is not an unforgivable sin. Never was. That is good news. Amen. Uh, amen? Amen. We know this, right, church? Divorce has never been an unforgivable sin. No more than if a man at some point in his past had an issue with greed or violence. It does not disqualify him from being one of the church's shepherds today. Now, this doesn't mean that the circumstances of a man's divorce are completely irrelevant. They're not. If this man sinned in his marriage, then maybe he might fall in some other virtues like blameless or loves what is good or self-controlled or holy or disciplined. Maybe it needs to be vetted. Is the divorce a past sin that's been confessed, repented of, and forgiven? Are those sins evident in this man's life right now today? Or does everybody know this guy as a shining example of the Holy Spirit's transforming power? That's what we're looking for. Marital faithfulness is a virtue. It has little to do with going through a divorce a long time ago. And it has nothing to do with the number of marriages a guy has had due to divorce or death. Those things do not reflect on the current Christian character of a shepherd. Okay, what if the guy's single? Okay. What if he is single? Being single does not disqualify a man from being a shepherd. It's like the instructions on children. If you have children, they need to be obedient and respectful. If you don't have children, these instructions don't apply. If you are married, you need to be faithful to your wife. If you're not married, these instructions do not apply. And furthermore, just use your common sense, brothers and sisters. God gave us a brain. We should use it. If we're reading any passage in the Bible in a way that would disqualify Jesus Christ from being a shepherd in his own church, we're reading it wrong. Right? I mean, we're, we're interpreting it incorrectly. And that's not on the Bible. That's on us. One more thing that trips us up sometimes is this phrase, able to teach. I think sometimes we disqualify a guy because he's not a polished speaker or he's never taught a Bible class, you know. But if you look at the context here in first, uh, I'm sorry, in Titus uh, 1, verse 9, the idea isn't so much the ability to teach a Sunday school class as it is the ability to pass on the truth of the gospel in whatever way he does it. You know, the shepherd lives in the Word of God. He dwells continually in the Scriptures, and he's got a, a larger view and a firmer grasp on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he knows very well the difference between sound and unsound uses of Scripture. It's not teaching a Bible class. You can teach a Bible class and still not have a firm grasp on the gospel, right? An elder needs to know and pass on that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not by our works. That's the truth. That's the gospel. That's sound doctrine. Church shepherds have to uphold that truth. They have to defend that truth. They have to rebuke others in the church to keep us in that truth. 
And when Paul says trustworthy message, or when he says sound doctrine, he's not talking about how to organize a church, or how to run an elders meeting, or how to conduct a worship service that's decently and in order, right? He's talking about our salvation in Jesus Christ. The classroom is just one way to do that. There are lots of ways to teach and to pass on the Christian faith. Some of the greatest shepherds we've known can set a soul on fire just by sitting across a breakfast table with one or two people and an open Bible. So the bottom line is, let's not read and apply these two Bible passages on church leadership through some kind of a legal lens that bogs us down on just one or two points and distracts us from the main point, which is, who is this man? Who is his character? Or what is his character, right? What is his integrity? What is his heart for the Lord? I think we should focus more. And put more of our energies and attention into the richer and deeper words like blameless and above reproach. Not perfect, but this guy can't be criticized or legitimately accused of not doing everything in his power to live like Jesus. Respectable. Good reputation with outsiders. You know, we said this Wednesday night, if you're out somewhere on the town and you run into somebody you don't know that well, you're at lunch or at a business meeting and somebody brings up Byron Fender's name, you know, and you go, oh, I know Byron Fender. How do you know Byron Fender? Well, he's an elder at my church. What you don't want is for that person to go, oh my word, Byron is an elder at your church? That's not what you want. What you want is, oh, Byron's an elder. That makes sense because I know Byron's life. I know his character. I know his heart. That makes sense. Words like that, these are the words we should be paying attention to. Self-controlled, which means he doesn't fly off the handle. He's got a grip on his emotions. He, he doesn't give in to his impulses. Hospitable, right? Not, not just having your friends over for dinner, is the way Jesus would say it. This means you're taking care of the marginalized. You're blessing people who can't pay you back. Not violent, but gentle. Not, not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Not overbearing, which is the opposite of the Holy Spirit fruit of gentleness, kindness, patience. Not quick-tempered. Upright. Holy. Disciplined. Like Jesus. Christ-like. Above all else, we're looking for men who are living like Jesus and raising the bar for all of us. Shepherds we can follow. Shepherds we can look to and imitate. That's how the Bible talks about church leaders. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He's the one who wrote these lists. Paul says to the church in Corinth, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. To, to the church in Philippi, he says, whatever you've seen in me, you put that into practice. When he writes the Thessalonians, he says, we are the models for you to follow. Follow us as your examples. Peter, church elder, tells his fellow elders throughout Asia Minor, be examples to the flock. People need good models of the Christian life. It's essential to our faith. It's critical for our churches. And it is a colossal responsibility for our elders. I think the men who are being asked to serve as new shepherds 
should take a long pause and they should prayerfully consider the immense responsibility. Because the way I read it, elders are saying to God's people, look at my life. Look at me. Watch me. See how I'm living. And then copy me. Imitate me. Follow me. Not because I'm perfect. Not by any stretch. But because I'm doing everything in my power to live every day with my Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.17 says, Join with others in following my example, brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Take note of those who live according to the pattern. Take note of those who live according to the gospel. The Bible is saying there are people among you in your presence right now who can show you how to live a life connected to God in Christ. Take note of those people. Point them out. Okay, here's one. Eddie Lee. Right there. Eddie Lee. Don't stand up, Eddie. I know you hate this, and I love it. Eddie Lee. Not tomorrow, but one week from tomorrow, April 3rd, next Monday, will mark 20 years as a faithful shepherd at this Church of Christ at Golf Course Road. 20 years. For 47 years, though, he has shepherded this church. For 47 years, Eddie has taught Bible classes. He has encouraged. He has visited the hospitals, he has attended the funerals, he has mentored, he has checked in, he has labored and worked to be in people's lives, to be connected to this community of faith, and to lead by his example, Eddie Lee. For the last 20 years, he's also attended elders meetings in kind of an official capacity, but for 47 years, Eddie Lee has been a shepherd of this church. We're going to point him out today. Eddie, for as long as anybody here has known you, you've been a model of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Would you and Carol both, would y'all come up here and join me on this stage? And would you, church, show your appreciation to these two pillars of the community of faith here at Golf Course Road?